as the screen says, I am. Whoops. Let's go back. I'm going to try this way. As you're aware, I've been looking at the I am statements of um, Jesus because I'm really trying to work out who is this Jesus character and what kind of things can we learn about him from his statements. And so far, we've covered when he said, I am the bread of life. If you remember, he says, everyone has a spiritual hunger inside them and that hunger can only be filled by the presence and guidance of God. His second I am statement was, I'm the light of the world. And that was done at the festival when the, those lights that were lit in the temple that reflected from those golden walls, they are a sign of God's presence and guidance. And he says, I am that net light. I'm the light of the world. He who comes to me will never walk in darkness. And then we said, I am the door. I am the only way to come and be a part of that guidance and presence of God. There is nothing you can do. Then what happens once we accept him as the door and we enter the sheep pen? He says, I am the good shepherd. We are cared for and we are loved. Then the I am statement that we'll study today is the fifth I am statement found in John's gospel. Once again, this is another one of those statements that we all know of. And it's all about Jesus telling us, how long this love and care that we receive once we enter into the sheepfold, how long will it continue? Well, as I said, it's found in John chapter 11, where he says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus made this statement in the context of the event of raising Lazarus back to life. As I said, this statement is found in John chapter 11, do you know, most scholars believe that this chapter is one of the most pivotal chapters in John's gospel. Why? Because it contains the final actions on Jesus' part to set the stage for his arrest and his crucifixion. The raising of Lazarus from the dead was not his last miracle before the cross, but it certainly was his greatest and one that aroused the most response from both his friends and his enemies. Rather than read the whole chapter to you, I'm going to give you the Garth walkthrough version. But let me encourage you, go away this week and read John chapter 11 and see if it doesn't stir in your soul. How about we pray? Father God in heaven, we thank you for your word. And uh, Lord, we thank you that your word is truth. As we open up your word today, may you speak to us, may you encourage us, may you guide us, and may you bring us closer into a relationship with you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. John 11 opens with a simple statement. Now, there was a certain man who was sick, but this just wasn't any man. This man was a friend of Jesus. Verse 3 calls Lazarus he who Jesus loved. Verse 5 also says, Jesus also loved his sisters, Mary, Martha. So John chapter 11 begins with a deathbed situation. Jesus' friend Lazarus was ill and nearing death. His sister Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus about his condition and called for him to come quickly. In fact, Lazarus could die if you don't come quickly. This account of Jesus being called by Mary and Martha is the same as many of us pastors and family members sometimes face 
when a loved one is on their deathbed, we will see, receive news and the news is get over here as quick as you can. Jesus was at Bethbara and that's about 20 miles from Bethany. So it probably took his messenger one day to get from Mary and Martha to Jesus. Thankfully, he found him and he gave Jesus the message about Lazarus. Interesting, though, what you find is this. Unlike what you and I would probably do when faced with this situation, Jesus didn't drop everything he was doing and leave straight away. He sent the messenger back with an encouraging message for the sisters. But even then, he didn't send the messenger back until the next day. He sent the messenger back the next day with this message. This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for the glory, God's glory, so that God's son may be glorified through it. Then we're told he still waited two more days before he left for Bethany. The schedule of events would look something like this. Day one, the messenger came to Jesus. Day two, the messenger returns to Bethany. Day three, Jesus waits another day and then departs. Day four, Jesus arrives in Bethany. I'm not sure about you, but I've often read this and see the delay that Jesus made in this and wonder, why would he choose to do that? Why would he choose to wait two more days before returning to Bethany? Was it just procrastination or did Jesus has a method in this seeming madness of not running? What would his message convey to the grieving sisters that he's not coming straight away? Especially now that his brother was already dead and buried. Well, I think Jesus doing what he was doing, he was urging them in this. No matter how discouraging the servants save may appear, believe in his word. They had his word. This will not end in death, even though it already had. When Jesus announced to his friends his intention to return to Judea, they were shocked. After all, the last time they were there in Jerusalem, he'd almost been attacked and stoned to death. Now he wants to go to Bethany, a town that's only a mere two miles away from there. So they question his wisdom of his travelling to such a hot spot. So he explained the purpose of his journey. The dialogue is actually quite funny. People say to me, does God have a sense of humour? I say, yes, he does. All you need to do is read John chapter 11. This is how the dialogue goes. Jesus says, guys, we've got to go to Judea again. But Lord, they want to kill you there. Jesus says, walk in the daylight and you won't stumble. The disciples with blank looks on their heads, scratching their heads. Jesus says, Lazarus is asleep and I need to go and wake him up. Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll get better. No, Lazarus is dead. Again, the disciples look and stare at him with blank looks. But you just said, ah, and I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. Let's go. And then good old Thomas pipes up and says, yeah, let's go. Let's all go and die with him because that's what they thought they were walking into. The disciples' response revealed their lack of understanding of what Jesus had told them. But now, don't pick on them because I think all of us would have been in the same boat. We would have been left scratching our heads as, what is he saying and why are we going there? 
They mistakenly interpreted his words about Lazarus' sleeping condition. They assumed that with plenty of sleep, he would surely get better and, and get well. So why go? However, from what Jesus said to his disciples, we can see he was planning to bring Lazarus back to life all along. That was his plan. We can also see that Jesus waited two extra days, especially as part of his purpose. Why? Because his purpose was to bring glory to God and help people believe in his Father. That's why the wait. So by waiting two days, it would be clear that this was a resurrection of not just a nearly dead man. While it's true that this resurrection would be greater than any physical from sickness from a man that's just asleep, it reveals the purposeless nature of Jesus' action. Jesus didn't do what he did or say what he said or go where he wanted to just because the mood hit him. He wasn't a man that just went out and did things on a whim. Every action was part of his overall plan to show the world that he was the Son of God. Everything he did was to show the world the fact he was the Messiah. Even this dangerous journey to Bethlehem for Lazarus' behalf was fought with that purpose. And this is where we picked up the reading today. When Jesus and his men arrived in Bethany, Martha went out to meet him and rebuked him by saying, Lord, if you'd been here earlier, my brother would not have died. Jesus' immediately response was this, your brother will rise again. Martha's response to Jesus' word revealed her understanding of resurrection as a doctrine. She said, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last days. In response to her words, Jesus gave today's I am statement. He looked at her and said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Then he looked at her and said, do you believe this? This conversation between Jesus and Martha wasn't designed to be a theological debate or about the principle of resurrection. Rather, it was, it was there to introduce her to the fact that Jesus himself is the resurrection and the life. Jesus could not only heal disease, he has the power to restore life itself. He can reserve the process, reverse the process of decay and start that stop that stops people from dying. He can come in and bring everything. This conversation between Jesus and Martha was designed to move her from a faith in doctrine to a faith in the person that was standing before him, the Messiah. With this one statement, I am the resurrection and life, he transformed the doctrine that she believed. He took the teachings of death and resurrection out of a book and put them into a person. What person? Himself. He changed resurrection from a future doctrine and made it a present day reality. I find it interesting that Jesus was able to remain calm and businesslike with Martha. But when she went out and, um, and Mary came and talked with Jesus, everything changed. Mary came to him and basically said the same thing that her sister had said. She cried and fell at his feet. But this time, Jesus was visibly moved. Here is where we find the shortest verse in our Bible. 
verse 45 says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept is the shortest verse in our Bible, yet some say it is also the deepest. You see, this word wept is only ever used once in our scripture. One time. When? Here. This word describes a silent weeping. Every other Greek meaning and every other time the word wept is used in our New Testament, it is about loud mourning, crying, weeping, grasping. But here it said Jesus wept silently. But you could ask, why did he weep at all? I mean, after all, he knew that he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. The spectators saw him cry. The spectators saw his tears as evidence of his love. But some of them said, if Jesus loved Lazarus so much, why did he not prevent his death? Others were also thinking, Jesus is wimping because he was unable to do anything about it. Their tears of regret. Jesus repeatedly backed up his I am statements with miracles. And he was about to do it once again. Jesus could delay no more. He had the mourners take him to where the tomb was, where Lazarus was laying. He had them take away the stone at the entrance. At that moment, Martha, good old practical Martha, said, but Lord, by this time, there will be a bad smell. He's been in there four days. Jesus reminded her of that previous conversation where she confessed her faith in him as the son of God. He said, did I not tell you if you believe you will see the glory of God? When they took away the stone, Jesus prayed a simple prayer. And then a loud voice, he called out, Lazarus, come out. Taken literally, his words are this, Lazarus, this way out, as if to direct someone out of a gloomy dungeon. Do you know, for me, these are some of the funniest verses in the Bible. Why? Because Lazarus appeared at the entrance of the tomb. No big deal. Think about it. He's a mummy. He's wrapped up from head to toe. How did he get there? He must have jumped. There's no way. He didn't walk out. He must have, he must have jumped there. I'm being serious. When they, do it, they wrap their dead in, right? So how did he come out? He must have jumped out. Imagine seeing that. Then I love how Jesus casually sees him, jumps out, and I guess all these bystanders are there and like, whoa, what's he say to them? Unwrap him. <laughs> what the? Would you do that? Would you unwrap him? They're going to say, no way, we're not going to unwrap him. That's the way it took place. More than any other miracle, this event is the greatest demonstration of the power and authority of Jesus. Raising Lazarus from the dead was Jesus' most powerful way of demonstrating that he is the Messiah, the Lord's anointed, just as he said he was all along. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus called Lazarus and raised him from the dead. This was an unquestionable miracle that even the most hostile spectator could not desire. Why? They saw him jump out of the tomb and then they saw him unwrapped. Do you know, in Jesus' day, healings were often disputed. Other miracles were often um, limited by other sources. But how do you explain this, what's happening before them? How do you explain a man jumping out of tomb, still wrapped up after being in there four days, then being unwrapped and he's alive? This was no, not certainly a near-death experience. 
The smell of decay is proof positively that death had occurred. The Jewish leaders could not explain away this miracle. And that's why when you read to the end of chapter 11, they didn't even try. They were arguing no more. Jesus proved he did embody this I am the resurrection and life statement. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Now, you may think, great, but what does that have to do with me today? Well, this story connected Jesus, this latest I am statement teaches us three important details about Jesus, the way he personally acted while he was living on this earth, especially with Mary and Martha. As you go away this week, if you read chapter 11, you will see it is still the same way he deals with us today. How? Well, the first is this. As the resurrection and the life, his response to us is purposeful. Let me ask you this. Do you ever feel or think the same way Martha did about your own life and God's power to help you? Do you ever feel it's too late? I've gone too far. I'm too far away. There's no coming back. The line's been crossed and there's no help. There's no hope. God, if you'd only been here earlier, maybe it wouldn't be this way for me. Lord, where were you when it was possible for you to help me? Now it's all over. Now it's too late. Not even you can do anything now. You ever been there? Well, listen to me. God is not limited by what you and I believe about him. God can do a whole lot more than you and I can ever possibly think or imagine he can. That's what Martha found out. So a great lesson for me in this passage is when we face those times in our lives when we think, why is God not intervening to help me in my time of need? Or for the times we may be thinking, why is God delaying answering or responding to my prayers? Always go back to John chapter 11. Even though we may think it's too late, even though we may think he came too late, his delay is not intervening or his delay in not intervening and responding to our prayers always has a purpose. His purpose for doing this in your life is exactly the same as the purpose he had for the life of Mary and Martha. What is that? That your life will bring glory to God and help others see Jesus. That's why he does it. This is always what God ultimately wants for us for our life to bring glory for him and so others can see him in us. And if that means he shows up and answers our prayers or steps in at the last minute, guess what? That's what, exactly what he will do. That's his purpose. His response and his actions to us is purposeful. Secondly, his connection to us is personal. We know that Jesus came to reveal God to us, that God is not impersonal and aloof God. He genuinely cares. He feels for us. And this story demonstrates that truth in a beautiful way. There is a certain theological system or belief that held the idea that God is unmoved by the human condition. Some people believe that God is out there and he's not touched by what happens in our life that God has already foreordained and set things in motion from now to all eternity. Therefore, God is not swayed by whatever humans may do in that space. 
But when Jesus came to earth to reveal God to us, this story reveals the heart of a loving, compassionate God who is fully capable of grieving along with his creation. This picture of Jesus weeping along with Mary lets us know that God is moved by our grief. Even though he knew that he would soon bring Lazarus to life, he was touched by the grief of his friend. Our Lord's weeping reveals the humanity of Jesus as a human saviour. It shows his connection to us is personal. He joins us in all of our experiences and know how we feel. His tears in this chapter assures us of his sympathy. Jesus wept silently for Mary and he weeps silently with us. He still does it today. The fact that he loves us and we love him is no guarantee that we'll be sheltered from the problems and pains of life. After all, the father loved the son, yet the father permitted Jesus, the beloved son, to drink the cup of sorrow and experience the shame of the cross. We must never think that love and suffering are incompatible. Take Mary and Martha. Their situation seemed hopeless. These are some of Jesus' closest friends. They knew Jesus and yet they were still suffering. But Jesus came along, identified and connected with them personally. Each experience of suffering and trial ought to increase our faith, not decrease our faith. But I guess you're all aware this kind of spiritual growth is not automatic. We must respond positively to the ministry and the word of the Spirit of God. True faith relies on God's promises and thereby reveals God's power. That's the way it works. The promise in Psalm 50, 15 finds its parallel here. Then call on me when you're in trouble and I will rescue you and you will give me glory. The love that God has for his own children is not a pampering love. It's a perfecting personal love. It is one that is intimate. He is there and he shares with you. And the final thing is this. As the resurrection in life, his effect on us is powerful. The way Jesus proved himself to be the resurrection on the life was a, by a powerful miracle indeed. He showed that he held the vital power to bring the dead to life. We don't know how many people Jesus raised from the dead, but three are recorded in our Gospels. He raised a 12-year-old girl who had just died. He raised a young man who'd probably been dead for about a day. And then the one we've looked at today, Lazarus, an older man who'd been dead for four days. Do you know, I think it's sad. We live in a world that tries to deny the reality of death. I'm not sure if I shared with you, but when I was um, a youth leader way back when I was 19 and 20, I had a youth activity that we did every year and some of the parents used to come and say, why are you doing that? What was the activity? I took our youth group to a funeral home every year. Every year we went and toured a funeral home. Um, they never saw dead bodies. They saw where embalming happened and everything like that. The funeral home was run by Christians. And I remember the funeral director used to say to our kids, there's one thing we don't want you to think about when you're here. And he said, that's death. He said, all our cars are perfect. He said, all our walls are perfect. He says, there's no windows. He said, the only windows that you normally see in funeral parlours are up in the sky. So that way, as you're sitting there, all you see is the sky. He says, all our tyres are blackened. He says, we try and make everything perfect so that way you're not faced with death. 
I remember when I did grief counselling at college. We were taught when you're working with people in grief, make sure you use this word. What word? Dead. They said people will always try and limitate it. They'll say things like people don't die, they're deceased or they're passed away or they've left us. They're not buried, they're laid to rest or they're interned. The psychologist that was leading us in teaching us grief counselling, it says, however you change it in your vocabulary, it doesn't alter the reality. People die and the people who die, they're dead. And so when you're talking to families, make sure you use that terminology. We don't do death very well. We try and hide it. As the resurrection and the life, the this death is what Jesus has power over. And yes, we still see that power over death today. Now, you may jump up and down and say, hang on, Garth, we don't see that power today. I mean, have you ever seen anyone raised from the dead? Do you know, not to, to confuse you, but my parents that come here, that's my stepmum. My real mum, so my parents, my parents got remarried when I was 13. My real mum married a name, a guy, they're still married. My real mum married a guy named Kevin Wigglesworth. Kevin Wigglesworth is relative of Smith Wigglesworth. Has anyone heard of Smith Wigglesworth? Okay, Smith Wigglesworth. Um, so Kevin and um, Smith are related. So he's gone down as a great theologian of Australia. He has claimed to raise people from the dead. My, my stepdad has his papers, his journals, and um, he's talked about raising people from the dead overseas. Do you know that's why my stepdad's not a Christian? He said it's impossible, couldn't happen, doesn't believe it. We struggle when it comes to believing this. And that's why I say, we, I say to you, we still see this power today. And you can say, hang on, Garth, we don't see this power today. I've never seen anyone raised from the dead. Well, let me tell you, yes, you have. If you are sitting here today and you can see me, you have seen someone raised from the dead. What am I talking about? I'm talking about this. Ephesians 1 tells us this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins. Every one of us was dead spiritually. Every one of us needed to be brought back to life. Because he is the resurrection and the life, he is also our resurrection and life. The same Jesus who raised Lazarus has the same power to raise us from the dead. That's why I say his effect on us is powerful. Hebrews 9.27 tells us people are destined to die once and after that face judgment. But the person who trusts in Jesus Christ, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He did not come into judgment. He has passed from death to life. All of us have been dead spiritually, yet through Christ we've all been brought back to life. This is spiritual resurrection. But there is a great and glorious difference between physical resurrection and spiritual resurrection. And it is this. Everybody, Jesus or the apostles, or Smith Wigglesworth raised from dead to life, they died in the end. But those who've been raised to eternal life spiritually will never die. They will be with Jesus forever. Jesus, as the resurrection and life, is the only one who has the power to resurrect anyone who is spiritually dead and give them eternal life. 
Why? Because he is the resurrection and the life. He's still doing it today. Do you know, I got a text late last night about 11.30 from Julie. She said, can you please share this in church? She said, this has been one of the best camps we have ever had. She said, last night, yeah, so, yeah, so Saturday night, she said there was about 20 or so kids that decided to, to follow Jesus, that wanted to know more, that wanted to put their life in his. Jesus as the resurrection and the life is the only one who has the power to resurrect anyone who is spiritually dead and bring them back to eternal life. We prayed for that camp last week. That's why her and Lauren wanted me to share this. Things are happening in big and mighty ways. You know, when we look at the three people I mentioned before that Jesus physically raised from the dead, we see some similarities to our spiritual resurrection. If I was to ask you this question, which of these three people were most dead? You'd think I'd lost my mind because there's no degrees of death. However, there are different types of physical signs and decay depending on how long someone has been dead. The same is true for spiritual death. Do you know there are a million of religious people out there that live a good life and they're just like that little girl. They don't give much evidence of decay and death, but they're spiritually dead. Others are like that young man who'd been dead for a day. Because of their sin and their lifestyle, they give more indication of decay. And then there are some like Lazarus who are quite decayed and everybody knows their lifestyle. And we all know spiritually they're dead. Yet Jesus has the power to raise them all from spiritual death. Another similarity is this. After each of the three mentioned in our scriptures were raised, they all gave evidence to something. Do you know what they gave evidence to? They were alive. They were dead, but now they're alive. The little girl walked around the room and ate some food. The young man spoke. Lazarus, even though his feet were bound and he was all tied up, came out of the cave. They unwrapped him and put new clothes on him. When sinners are raised from spiritual death by the power of living Christ, you can tell they've been raised. It is by their walk, by their talk, by their appetite for spiritual food. You can tell by their rejection of the old life as they put on the new life. You can tell something has happened inside them. You can tell that they have been spiritually raised from the dead. Most of you are aware I, I lived and worked at a campsite called Railway Homestead. We were there for six years and there were phone calls I used to love getting. Parents would ring up. Hello, we were at Homestead gasping. I'm just ringing up to see what the heck did you do to our kids? What do you mean? Or they've come back different. What do you mean? My son's never cleaned his room. He's cleaning his room. My wife asked him to do dishes. He did dishes. Other people say how their daughters have come home and they wanted to spend time with their parents. The best one was, now I hope I don't offend anyone in saying this, but this, this is a funny one. We had a guy ring up. Hello, yep. What have you done to our son? Why? He's come home different. What do you mean? Oh, well, he's spending time with us and this, that and the other and he doesn't even bloody swear anymore. What have you done? When someone is raised from the dead, they are different and they are different for the better. Paul said it beautifully in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. 
The old is gone, the new is here. In each instance of these three people Jesus restored life to, it was the powerful command of his word that raised those people to life. And the resurrection of life that Jesus is so powerful over death and it is still powerful today. How powerful is it? I remember one commentator in one commentary made this comment about John chapter 11. He said, isn't it good that when Jesus spoke, he said, Lazarus, come out. He said, imagine if he didn't say Lazarus's name. He said, imagine all the graves in that area where people are just coming out. He said, could you imagine it? Well, you could because he said, that's the power of the words of Jesus. Jesus' words are so powerful. That same powerful word today raises sinners from spiritual death when they believe in Jesus. When we find ourselves confronted by disease, disappointments, delay and even death, our only encouragement, our only hope is the powerful words of God. He is the resurrection and the life. Who is Jesus? He is the resurrection and the life. When you read John chapter 11, it shows his response to us is personable. He wants, has purpose in bringing glory to himself and to his father. His connection to us is personal. He does not some God that sits up there in the clouds. He shares with us. His effect on us is powerful. If you are spiritually dead, he can raise you to spiritual life. Let me ask you this. He's called out your name. He offers you the chance to throw off the grave clothes and enter a whole new eternal life with him. Have you answered that call or are you staying in the tomb? Do you know that you have been saved from someone that is dead in sin and transgressions and spiritually dead to someone who's alive? If you don't, then don't leave here today without it. Let him grab hold of you. Let him call him out of your tomb. He doesn't care if you have to jump out. He just wants you to come. Why? Because he's the resurrection and the life. He's the door. He's the good shepherd. He's the light of the world and he's the bread of life. When you put all this stuff together, we're on a good wicket. We are with the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Kings, the one who calls himself Jesus. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I thank you for our time together today. Lord, I thank you that um, you are such a mighty God that you save us still today. Father, I just thank you that, um, yeah, for who you are and what you teach. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the way you walked this earth, for the things you did, for the things you said. And Holy Spirit, I thank you that you now live in us and you bring us that eternal life that is a gift of God through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray if anyone is here today, that doesn't know that, then may they not leave today without getting right with you. I thank you that you still have the power to save us, to conform us and to bring glory to yourself. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.